Hi, welcome to another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Nashville Tennessean, The Financial Times, VOA News, The New York Times, and TheDailyCost.com. But we're going to get started with a story about scholarships from Newsweek. The title of the article is New Scholarship Offers for African American Students in Physics and Astronomy. It was written by Darko Manevsky and was published June 3rd, 2022 at the Newsweek.com website. A multi-million dollar scholarship program focused on tackling the underrepresentation of African-American students in physics and astronomy over the next five years has been unveiled. The Team Up Together scholarship program will provide financial assistance to those students to help them achieve their bachelor's degrees. These awards of up to $10,000 per student per school year aim to reduce the financial barriers preventing many black students from completing their undergraduate degree programs in physics and astronomy. Team Up Together is a collective impact initiative led by the American Institute of Physics, AIP, American Association of Physics Teachers, American Astronomical Society, American Physical Society, and Society of Physics Students to support the scientific community to take the next bold step in doubling the number of African-American students earning physics and astronomy bachelor's degrees annually by 2030. Michael Maloney, CEO of AIP, said, The American Institute of Physics is partnering with the American Association of Physics Teachers, the American Astronomical Society, the American Physical Society, and the Society of Physics Students to build a program of support for undergraduate physics and astronomy students and departments as part of realizing the team-up goal of doubling the number of African-American bachelor's degree graduates in these fields by 2030. The scholarship initiative will help black students in need with expenses that assist the students in continuing or completing their undergraduate education. The money could be used for tuition and fees required for enrollment or attendance at an educational institution or for fees, books, equipment, and other related expenses required for courses or internships. This scholarship program provides a real opportunity to support African-American students in completing their degrees by easing the stresses that many have as a result of financial challenges, said Arlene Modeste Knowles, Team Up Together Project Manager. It will hopefully create some mental space for them to engage more fully and thrive in their educational programs. During the first year of the scholarship program, students must be attending historically black colleges and universities or predominantly black institutions to be eligible for the scholarship. But over time, these awards will be expanded to African-American students at all institutions across the United States. The scholarships will be administered by AIP Society of Physics Students on behalf of the Team Up Together Partner Societies. Students must complete their scholarship application by November 15, 2022. Full details on what is required for application, the criteria for selection, and other information can be found at teamuptogether.org. The percentage of African Americans earning degrees in physics and astronomy has been persistently low for more than two decades. According to a survey from AIP Statistical Research Center, just 3% of physics bachelor's degrees were earned by African Americans for the class of 2018. 
For comparison, African Americans earned 10% of all bachelor's degrees awarded for the 2017-2018 school year. Personal support, including financial support, was one of the five factors identified in the team-up study as contributing to the persistence of underrepresentation. With the completion of the two-year team-up study released in 2020, we understand better the factors that have led to the persistent and egregious underrepresentation of African Americans in these fields, Maloney said. We are compelled as a community to take action. Our partners at the Simmons Foundation and Simmons Foundation International have fueled the effort with a $12.5 million grant enabling the launch of these transformational initiatives that will drive systemic change and affect students' lived experiences. In addition to student scholarships, Team Up Together will soon offer grants to undergraduate physics and astronomy departments committed to implementing the Team Up report recommendations at their institutions. That was a reading of the story, New Scholarship Offers for African-American Students in Physics and Astronomy, written by Darko Manevsky, and that appeared June 3, 2022, at the Newsweek.com website. Next on the African American Hour is a story from The Voice of America and its voanews.com website. The title is U.S. Military Bases Honoring Confederate Figures Slated to Get New Names. It was written by Dora McCower, capital D-O-R-A, capital M-E-K-O-U-A-R, and it was published July 5th, 2022. As a young black officer, Troy Mosley arrived at Fort Benning in Georgia in 1995, where he eventually took command of a 300-person company at the age of 31. The irony of leading hundreds of troops at a world premier military base named in honor of a Confederate officer who fought to defend slavery was not lost on him. It was kind of a peace offering to the defeated Confederates that we will allow you all to have some dignity and some honor and noble defeat, says Mosley now a retired lieutenant colonel and author. But what it said to me as a black American and a black army officer was that my inclusion was not as meaningful or as important, and therefore I was an American by grace only, but not really welcome at the table. More than 20 years later, Fort Benning is among nine military installations in the American South, all named after officers who fought against the United States in the Civil War, that is likely to be renamed. A congressionally mandated commission has proposed new names for the bases. Fort Benning would become Fort Moore, named after Lieutenant General Hal Moore, who served in Korea and Vietnam, and his wife, Julia, an advocate for military families. During the selection process, some pushed to rename Fort Benning after Roscoe Robinson, Jr., the first African-American four-star general who served in Korea and Vietnam. Mosley thinks the naming commission steered away from that to avoid potential pushback. There are elected officials that criticize the military for being a woke organization, says Mosley, who is president of a group called Citizens Against Intolerance. I think that a lot of that criticism comes from elected officials who've never served a day in the military, and they don't understand that the military has the structure, the bones of America's great meritocracy. You have people from all walks of life who come together for a shared belief in a system of governance, and they're willing to put their lives on the line to defend that. 
The proposal would rename the Army installations for a diverse group of people, including women, African-Americans, a Latino, and a Native American. Fort Lee, Virginia, named for General Robert E. Lee, commander of Confederate troops, would become Fort Gregg Adams in honor of retired Lieutenant General Arthur Gregg, who served in Korea and Vietnam, and Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams, who served in World War II. Both are African-American. Fort Hood, Texas, named after Confederate General John Bell Hood, would be named Fort Cavazos after Richard E. Cavazos, the first Hispanic-American four-star general. Fort A.P. Hill, Virginia, named for Confederate General Ambrose Powell Hill, would become Fort Walker in honor of Dr. Mary Walker, the Army's first female surgeon who received the Medal of Honor for her Civil War service. Fort Pickett, Virginia, named for George Pickett, a Confederate Major General, would be renamed Fort Barfoot after Technical Sergeant Van T. Barfoot, a Native American who received the Medal of Honor after fighting off Germans during World War II. I think the military is trying to show that the new names reflect military values, and one of those values is diversity and unit cohesiveness. That we have people of all kinds serving in the military, says Jeff South, retired associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and that having bases named just after white men, especially white men who fought against freedom for African Americans and against the U.S. Army itself, is offensive on several levels. Other Defense Department properties named after Confederate figures could also be changed. The commission is reviewing the names of more than 750 military assets, including streets and signs, to see if they should also be changed. The renaming commission's final report is due to be presented to Congress in October. In keeping with the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, the defense spending legislation that created the panel, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin must implement the recommendations by January 2024. There is some thinking that Congress could get cold feet, especially after the midterm elections, depending on who controls the House and Senate, South says. So it's not quite a done deal yet. But because it was a bipartisan vote earlier, the thinking is that Congress will go ahead and affirm what the renaming commission has proposed. For his part, Mosley says he's proud of the military for recognizing the strategic, operational, and practical importance of diversity. We can't stay the same and become better simultaneously. Improvement requires change, and I think that the changes that the military has embraced to becoming a more inclusive organization only serves to make them better, he says. And I think that in doing so, they will not only make for a more lethal and more effective armed service, but they will also establish themselves as an institution for other organizations to emulate. There are several images that go along with this story. The first is a sign at the entrance of Fort Bragg. The sign says, Fort Bragg, home of the Airborne and Special Operations Forces. Next to those words is the Special Operations Forces insignia. In the background, is a red arrowhead pointed up. Then on top of that is a sword. On top of that is a pair of wings. Within those wings is a parachute. On top of the parachute is a wreath. And within that wreath is a five-pointed star. 
The caption reads, Fort Bragg in North Carolina honors a Confederate general and could soon be named Fort Liberty. The next image is a black and white picture of a soldier in his dress uniform. The caption reads, Fort Polk, Louisiana is slated to be renamed Fort Johnson in honor of Sergeant William Henry Johnson pictured here. Johnson single-handedly fought off two dozen enemy soldiers during World War I. And the final image is a sign outside of Fort Hood, Texas. It says, Welcome to Third Corps in Fort Hood, the great place. The caption reads, An interest at Fort Hood, Texas, currently named for a Confederate general, is slated to be renamed Fort Cavazos in honor of Richard Cavazos, the first Hispanic American four-star general. That was a reading of the story. U.S. military bases honoring Confederate figures slated to get new names. It appeared July 5, 2022 at the VOANews.com website and was written by Dora McCower. Next up is a story from the Nashville Tennessean and its Tennessean.com website. The title is Civil Rights Icons Diane Nash, Fred Gray Awarded Medal of Freedom by President Joe Biden. It was written by Kirsten Fiscus and was published July 7, 2022. Civil rights icons Diane Nash and Fred Gray were awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Joe Biden. Nash and Gray, both have ties to Nashville, were among 15 others who received the award. The Medal of Freedom is awarded to people who made significant contributions in the United States or internationally in politics, philanthropy, science, sports, the arts, and other arenas. In 1959, Nash, a Chicago native, arrived in Nashville to attend Fisk University. She led sit-ins at Nashville lunch counters, marching to the courthouse plaza, now named for her, to confront the mayor. Nash also coordinated freedom rides when violence threatened participants and, while pregnant, was jailed in Mississippi for teaching minors nonviolence protest tactics. She was elected chairperson of the Nashville movement and was a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Biden recalled a phone call between Nash and U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy's top aides when they warned her about the increasing violence surrounding the freedom rides. She replied, and I quote, We all signed our last will and testaments before we left. We know some of them will be killed. We cannot let violence overcome nonviolence, Biden said. Biden praised her unshakable courage during the civil rights movement. Her activism echoes the call of freedom around the world today, he said, and yet she's the first to say the medal is shared with hundreds of thousands of patriotic Americans that sacrifice so much for the cause of liberty and justice for all. Gray, a native of Montgomery, Alabama, attended Nashville Christian Institute, a now defunct African-American preparatory school. As a famed civil rights lawyer, he led some of the most pivotal legal cases of the era, defending Rosa Parks and serving as one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s first lawyers when the civil rights leader was a Montgomery pastor. Gray also served as legal counsel for Tuskegee syphilis study victims. Fred's legal brilliance and strategy desegregated schools and secured the right to vote, Biden said. He went on to be elected as one of the first African-Americans elected to the state Alabama legislature since Reconstruction. As an ordained minister, he imbued a righteous calling that touched the soul of our nation. There are some photographs that go along with this reading. 
The first is an image of the medal award ceremony. Diane Nash is standing wearing a pink pantsuit and she's holding President Biden's hand. There's a female naval officer holding up the medal for the crowd to see. The caption reads, Civil rights leaders Diane Nash, Fred Gray, given nation's highest civilian honor. Diane Nash, who led the sit-in movement to desegregate lunch counters in Nashville, and Fred Gray, who defended Rosa Parks in court in her fight to desegregate buses, were awarded the Medal of Freedom. The next image is a black and white photo that shows a line of protesters marching down a Nashville street. The caption reads, Black leaders marched down Jefferson Street at the head of a group of 3,000 demonstrators April 19, 1960, and heading toward City Hall on the day of the Z. Alexander Luby bombing. In the first row are the Reverend C.T. Vivian, Diane Nash of Fisk, and Bernard Lafayette of American Baptist Seminary. In the second row are Kenneth Frazier and Curtis Murphy of Tennessee Agricultural and Industrial University and Rodney Powell of Meharry College. Using his handkerchief in the third row is the Reverend James Lawson, one of the advisors to the students. News reporters believed it marked the first time Reverend Lawson had participated in a demonstration downtown. The next photograph shows President Biden putting the medal around Fred Gray's neck. The caption reads, President Joe Biden awards the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Fred Gray during a ceremony in the East Room of the White House in Washington, Thursday, July 7, 2022. Gray is a prominent civil rights attorney who represented Rosa Parks, the NAACP, and Martin Luther King Jr., who called Gray the chief counsel for the protest movement. And the final photograph shows President Biden putting the medal around Diane Nash's neck. The caption reads, President Joe Biden awards the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, to Diane Nash at the White House in Washington Thursday, July 7th, 2022. That was a reading of the article, Civil Rights Icons Diane Nash, Fred Gray Awarded Medal of Freedom by President Joe Biden. It appeared at the Tennessean.com website. It was written by Kirsten Fiscus. And it was published July 7th, 2022. The next reading comes from Financial Times Magazine and its FT.com website. The title is A Hero to Me, Henry Louis Gates and Cambridge's First African-American Student. It was written by Gillian Tett and was published June 24th, 2022. The subtitle to this article is an honorary doctorate gave the author and academic a chance to shine a light on the achievements of Alexander Crummel 170 years ago. A couple of years ago, I received a phone call from Henry Louis Gates Jr., director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard, and a friend telling me that he had just been offered an honorary doctorate from Cambridge University. He was thrilled not least because he reckoned it was the first time that an African-American man had received this type of honorary degree, he pledged to pay it back by creating a foundation in the name of Alexander Crummel, another Cambridge graduate. I had never heard of Crummel, even though I spent years studying at Cambridge myself. 
Gates explained that Crummel was the first African-American to have graduated from the university. I guess it was probably after the Second World War. Not so. This happened in 1853. Why, I wondered, were there no statues of Crummel at a university town brimming with monuments? And how did he end up studying here 170 years ago? The tale, as I later discovered, was a tangled one. But this week, Gates' wish came true. A plaque was unveiled in Cambridge in honor of Crummel and two other black pioneers, Gloria Carpenter, the first black woman to graduate from Cambridge in 1948, and George Bridge Tower, a mixed-race violinist awarded a Bachelor of Music degree in 1811. A foundation to champion minority students has also been established, to which I am one of the contributors. This will finally give the name Crummel the prominence it deserves. But the fact that it has taken more than a century to honor him speaks volumes about the way history is conceived and commemorated at educational establishments in both America and Europe. It also raises a question that should challenge us all. In an era when status of historical figures are being torn down because they are now deemed racist or sexist, is it time for us to put more energy into finding new heroes and heroines to celebrate? Crummel's tale cast such questions into particularly stark relief because his own story broke many boundaries. He was born in 1819 in New York, the son of a freeborn black mother and slave-born illiterate father, and as a teenager, he started running errands for the New York office of the American Anti-Slavery Society. One day when he was 14, he overheard a conversation in that office that changed his life. It concerned John C. Calhoun, the senator of South Carolina, who was such a prominent politician that several educational establishments later bore his name, including the Yale College where Gates himself resided in the early 1970s. Calhoun was a slave owner and unrepentant racist, so much so that he told friends he would only believe that the Negro was a human being and should be treated as a man if he could find a Negro who knew the Greek syntax. That was a rigid test. In the southern states of America, education for African Americans was illegal. When Crummel heard about that conversation in the Anti-Slavery Society, he was furious. Just think of the crude asininity of even a great man, he later wrote in an essay. How was the Negro to learn the Greek syntax, when laws banned this, to evidence to Mr. Calhoun his human nature? So he decided to prove Calhoun wrong. First, he attended the Noise Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, with the hopes of mastering that Greek syntax. Then, local white people who opposed racial integration burnt that school to the ground. Crummel was sent to the Oneida Institute in the more liberal region of central New York State and graduated, hoping to become a priest. The General Theological Seminary of the Protestant Episcopal Church refused to admit him on racial grounds. But Crummel was educated by sympathetic clergymen in Boston and Providence. He then tried to create a congregation among the large free community in Philadelphia, but the local bishop told him that, I will receive you into this diocese on one condition. No Negro priest can sit in my church convention, and no Negro church must ask for representation there. Crummel declined. In 1847, the frustrated priest sailed to England with his wife to raise funds for his would-be church. It was an enticing destination because the country was seeing a surge of abolitionist activism partly linked to the evangelical wing of the Church of England. Cambridge University was one focal point for this. People think of Cambridge as an ivory tower, but in the 19th century, the university was central to the movement because it had a strong evangelical group, says Keith Hart, a former Cambridge anthropology professor. 
Some abolitionist activists, among them Benjamin Brody and William Wilberforce, then suggested that Crummel should enter the university. It was a bold idea, given that in the 1850s, many Victorian elites were as racist as Calhoun. And aside from the mixed-race bridge tower, who apparently never fully matriculated, no black student had ever enrolled. But Crummel joined Queens College, and after several bumpy years, during which he and his wife became ill and lost a child, he passed his final exams in 1853 on his second attempt. When he finally attended the graduation ceremony, it created a storm. The Queens College official history notes, a boisterous individual in the gallery called out, three groans for the Queens nigger. A pale, slim undergraduate shouted in a voice which re-echoed through the building. Shame, shame. Three groans for you, sir. And immediately afterwards, three cheers for Crummel. This was taken up in all directions. Armed with that degree, Crummel continued to break the mold. From 1853 to 1873, he worked as a missionary in Liberia, trying to turn that country into a new home for African Americans. When those efforts largely failed, he returned to America and became a prominent campaigner for black rights and black education, pioneering the concept of Pan-Africanism. Then, in 1897, shortly before he died, Crummel joined forces with other prominent black intellectuals, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, to found the American Negro Academy. The aim was to raise a whole new generation of black intellectuals, or as Gates says, to prove Calhoun totally wrong. For that, Crummel is a hero to me. So why, I asked Gates, was there no memorial to Crummel in Cambridge before? It was a question that also baffled the American professor. Back in early 2020, when Stephen Toop, Cambridge's vice chancellor, had offered him an honorary degree, Gates had asked who was the university's first black graduate. When I heard it was Crummel, I went, holy mackerel, he recalls. By an odd coincidence, Gates had always been fascinated by the man, not least because when he went to Yale, he had been irked by the use of the name Calhoun. Gates, like many of the African-American intellectuals who emerged during the civil rights campaigns of the early 20th century, was keenly aware of the power of linguistic and visual symbols. When he entered Harvard University to create an African-American studies center, for example, he says that one of the first things I did at Harvard was to create a bust of Dubois. It is important that the black kids see images of their predecessors and commemorate the history of black people at Harvard. But Crummel was overlooked, partly because almost nobody in America knew about his Cambridge degree. Indeed, Gates himself knew relatively little about this, even though he had done his Ph.D. in Cambridge. Why? One reason may be that Britain did not experience a U.S.-style civil rights movement. Another is that British universities put less emphasis on affirmative action policies for black communities than their American counterparts in recent years. Another related issue is that the black population of elite colleges has been shamefully low. In 2011, for example, Cambridge only admitted 26 black students. And while that has subsequently risen sharply as a result of campaigns, including one backed by the rapper Stormzy to hit 128 in 2021, this is still just 3.5% of the total. Then there was another factor at work. The decentralized structure of Cambridge makes it harder for the university to develop a coordinated strategy about how to handle its own history, even or especially when this is being contested. Crummel is a case in point. 
About four years ago, some figures at Queens College realized that Cromwell had been enrolled there and added a post to the college's website about him. Then, two years ago, they created a dedicated foundation to support minority graduate research. The Cromwell story has really inspired us, says the economist Mohammed El Arian, president of Queens and contributor to the Financial Times. Having Cromwell scholarships is getting the name better known. But Gates and Toop did not know what Queens was doing, and the college was not aware of Gates' passion either. These matters tend to get decided at a college or department level, as Hart notes. Almost no attention has been paid to him before, says Toop who has launched a series of initiatives to support black students in the past couple of years. Now it is overdue. A critic might argue that this smacks of tokenism, given the racial disparities that remain in elite colleges. Fair enough. But Gates, for his part, remains convinced that some symbolic rendering is important to inspire the next generation. Doing this is one way to pay forward, he says. And Calhoun? Five years ago, the leaders of Yale decided to rename the college where Gates once lived as a gesture of disgust at Calhoun's advocacy of slavery. Two hundred long years after Crummel decided to learn Greek, some kind of intellectual justice has occurred. There are several images that go along with this story. The first shows a framed photograph of Alexander Crummel that is on a paneled wall at Cambridge. The caption reads, a portrait of Alexander Crummel in the President's Lodge at Queens College. The next image is a picture of Professor Gates sitting in a wingback chair underneath that photograph of Alexander Crummel. The caption reads, Henry Louis Gates Jr. at Queens College this week. The next image is a photograph of the campus of Cambridge. It shows students in a boat on a river that flows through the campus. Behind them is an arched bridge that goes over that waterway. Next, there is a photograph of four people walking down a pathway on the campus of Cambridge University. There are two men in front and two female students behind them. The caption reads, Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Dr. Mohammed L. Arian, president of Queens with students Rebecca Weistrich and Rubitsai Dubey, capital R-U-M-B-I-D-Z-A-I, capital D-U-B-E, president of the Black Cantabs Research Society. That was an article from the Financial Times magazine and its FT.com website. The title was A Hero to Me. Henry Louis Gates and Cambridge's First African-American Student. It was written by Gillian Tett. It was published June 24th, 2022. Next, I have a humorous reading about style from the website Anscape.com. The title is, What's Uncle Wearing to the Cookout? Linen shorts and sandals, of course. It was written by Channing Hargrove and appeared at this website on June 30th, 2022. The subtitle to this article is, those sharp creases send a message to the culture. What the man doing the grilling is wearing this weekend is almost as important as his dry rub recipe. We've all laughed at the memes, but our uncles in their linen short sleeve shirts, matching belted linen shorts, and woven fisherman sandals are an actualization of showing up in spaces of joy. 
We've all met, been around, or had an uncle or father figure, grandfather, those old school dudes, who speak about the importance of dressing. Stylist Eli Karamo, capital K-A-R-A-M-O-H, said, Whether we felt like they dressed the part or not, it was something significant to their upbringing and culture. We've all respected it. Karamo says the creased linen suits, sandals, shorts, and polo shirts are a way to communicate class. We honor our elders, our OGs, and we want to become them. Everyone has that uncle. It's something to be proud of and to honor. Kimberly Jenkins, the founder of the Fashion and Race Database, notes that the linen suit has become a rite of passage for black men. Akin to being able to handle the grill at a cookout, a person is stepping into their manhood once they don the linen suit, almost as if to say, I'm going to wear these clothes that signify maturity sophistication, and being cultured. An uncle in a linen suit also implies a level of freedom. This doesn't apply to all aunties and uncles, but more often than not, we're talking about the ones who didn't have children, Jenkins said. They're more free to take risks and be more self-indulgent. They wear, behave, and travel how they want. It's aspirational, and we love to be around them. We also love to be around them because we know they will slide us a few dollars or put us on to an older song we didn't appreciate when our parents played it at home. But it's more than that. It's what their appearance signals to us. When black men start to do all right for themselves, it shows. Consumption often attracts and solidifies community. For those black men, pulling up to the cookout in their shiny Cadillac while wearing a linen suit with creased pants and the luxuriously worn fisherman sandals signals to their family and the world that they've made it. They have money to spend, and they do. On a thick herringbone chain around their neck, a gold pinky ring with the quick flash of a diamond in the center, the covarsier they like to swirl around in a snifter. They might be slamming their Cuban-linked wrists down during a card game in someone's backyard, but this is black resort wear. Linen is now considered a symbol of luxury. Who wants to do all that ironing and starching on a material that will wrinkle the minute you take a step? But it was originally a fabric worn by the enslaved. Jenkins said black people's relationship with linen began with the descendants of enslaved people who were given a disposable, raw, unflattering material called Negro cloth to dress themselves. It was not designed for black people to stand out or to feel good in or to have as a fashion statement, she said. Before the Industrial Revolution, Linen was considered de rigueur for upper-class people to wear until the cotton gin made cotton production significantly easier, and that material became fashionable for the elite. Linen, which was previously considered the height of luxury in terms of wearability and material, was given to enslaved and lower-class people. Linen becomes marketed to the lower class, and it's pushed toward people who can't afford the more affluent fabric, which is cotton at the time, said Preeti Araya. Capital P-R-E-E-T-I, capital A-R-Y-A, Assistant Professor of Textile Development and Marketing at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. After emancipation, black people made it a point to break away from anything resembling Negro cloth and added their own flavor to the finery worn by their white peers. And by the later part of the 20th century, we saw a definite departure from the heavy Sunday best style of dress. Jenkins pointed to how entertainers such as comedians Bernie Mac and Steve Harvey reflected and popularized the stereotypical uncle at the cookout outfit. Though these twos didn't create this style of dress, they understood what the look communicated. Take the fisherman's sandals, for instance. 
Shoe brand Stacy Adams is popular with men of a particular age and notes has been selling a version of the fisherman's sandals for decades. Just the fact that they have been in our line since the early 2000s should be enough proof that these should keep going, said Stacy Adams designer Ryan Butts. The brand's vice president, David Polanski, confirms, We always sell the old school fisherman well. It's an older consumer and the guy wears it with sets, matching shirt and pants. Karamo began working with Harvey in 2019. Thanks to the popularity of the Steve Harvey show, it ran from 1996 to 2002, and the Kings of Comedy Tour with Mac, Cedric the Entertainer, and D.L. Hughley in 1997, Harvey already embodied the aspirational style of dress synonymous with black uncles. At the beginning of his professional relationship with Harvey, the two talked about what it means to be a black man with means. Mac and Harvey conveyed their status to their community through dress. They weren't men who were struggling anymore. They could afford to maintain their linen suits and keep their gold jewelry shining. Like the unfiltered uncles in the barbershop spouting off about the latest current events, men in linen suits convey a cultural shorthand spoken among the originals, the OGs. They've worked hard to get where they are. No small feat for any black man in America and can now enjoy the fruits of their labor. A lot of men, especially black men, start making a specific amount of money and we want to fill the space with this new identity, Karamo said. That's not usually ourselves, but that's a symbol of this new space, this new level. It's really important to identify yourself now. Lewis Johnson Jr., who co-owns Harlem Haberdashery in New York with his siblings, says that linen should really only be worn in the peak of summer's heat in July through September. July 4th is actually the classic day to start your linen. It's fine to wear linen in July, but if you're trying to wear it in April or June, you're speeding. And that's because linen is a vacation item to be worn. You guessed it, leisurely. I'm classic and buy classic pieces, Johnson said. I don't buy things that are on trend because it will be off trend next season. I have a nice little linen walking suit that I bought in Seattle over 30 years ago, but no one would know. For the record, Johnson prefers a linen blend or a light cotton for the summer. Johnson is a father and an uncle who hopes to impart to his sons and nephews the importance of keeping up their appearance. I just hope to take on the understanding as a black man to keep your nose clean, keep your ass washed, keep your breath clean and out of people's business, he said. Now, if your uncle pulls up at the family reunion in two weeks in Connecticut with a good linen suit, I'll let him pass. That's his clean. That's his classic. That's something he's probably had forever. There are several images that go along with this story. The first is a white linen button-down short sleeve shirt. The caption simply reads, J. Crew." The next image is a pair of black, hard-soled Stacy Adams fisherman sandals with a buckle enclosure. And the next image is a group picture of the four comedians mentioned in the story. Two of them are wearing the clothes that have been described in this reading. The caption reads, From left to right circa 2000, Cedric the Entertainer, Steve Harvey, D.L. Hughley, and Bernie Mac, stars of the original Kings of Comedy concert movie, get together at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. That is a reading of What's Uncle Wearing to the Cookout? Linen shorts and sandals, of course. It's from the website Anscape.com. It was written by Channing Hargrove and was originally published June 30th, 
2022. We're going to move from fashion to hairstyles. Next up is an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title is Willie Lee Morrill, Barber Who Popularized the Afro Pick, Dies at 82. It was written by Clay Risen and was originally published July 6th, 2022. Willie Lee Morrill, a son of Alabama sharecroppers who built a business empire around hair care products aimed at African-American consumers, among them a comb designed to work with the natural styles that exploded in popularity in the 1960s, a tool he called the Afro Tease, but which came to be known as the Afro Pick, died on June 22nd at his home in San Diego. He was 82. His daughter, Cheryl Morrill, said the cause was pneumonia. Mr. Morrill was already a successful barber on the east side of San Diego when a family friend, Robert Bell, walked into his shop in 1962. Mr. Bell had just returned from studying in Nigeria, and he brought Mr. Morrill a gift, a traditional wooden comb with long, stiff tines spaced well apart meant to tease out curly hair. Mr. Morrill had never seen anything like it, but it could not have landed in his hands at a better time. For generations, many black people had viewed their naturally kinky hair as a liability and either trimmed it close to the scalp or straightened it, often using painfully caustic chemicals to do so. But the civil rights movement produced a generation of young black people eager to assert their freedom from oppressive aesthetics. Natural hair was becoming as much a political statement as a style choice, a physical expression of the emerging black power ethos. The blowout, later known as the Afro, became the dominant style, but it presented a new challenge to barbers like Mr. Morrill. The Afro caught everybody off guard, he told Ebony Magazine in 1970. Even black barbers and beauticians in America were caught lacking the knowledge as well as the desire to style a decent Afro. An inveterate inventor, Mr. Morrill spent years working on his pick design, at first making wooden picks in the back of his shop before he landed on a plastic version that could be mass-produced. Eventually, he had seven models, one of them a blow-dryer attachment, and he was selling about 12,000 picks a week. Based on his growing reputation, the Department of Defense contracted with him in 1969 to train its thousands of barbers and beauticians to work on black hair. Until fairly recently, the black person was self-conscious about his curly, kinky hair, he told the New York Times in 1971. He or she would spend a fortune trying to take the curl out. That made it easy for the military. They would simply run the clippers closely over a Negro's head. No problem at all. Over the next few years, Mr. Morrow logged tens of thousands of miles visiting bases around Asia, Europe, and the United States giving workshops to military and local civilian barbers. He claimed he was the youngest person ever to log a million miles on Delta Airlines. Of course, not everyone wanted an Afro, even at the height of the Black Power era. And so, alongside the pick, he developed dozens of other hair care products, many of them straightening and softening treatments that were gentler than the conventional chemicals then in use. By the mid-1970s, he had a product called Tomorrow Curl, which began to take off in 1977 when he changed the name to California Curl. It gave his customers' hair a soft and shiny look, and like the pick, it was easy to use. Again, his timing was perfect. The Afro was waning in popularity, and young people were looking for a new style. 
But when Mr. Morrow decided to market his product exclusively to hair care professionals, other companies moved in. Jerry Redding, another California hairdresser, reformulated a product he already had on the market for white hair and sold it directly to black consumers. By the 1980s, the hottest hairstyle among young African Americans was the Jerry Curl, named for its popularizer, if not its inventor. Willie Lee Morrow was born on October 9, 1939, in Utah, Alabama, capital E-U-T-A-W, a farming town southwest of Birmingham. His parents, Holly and Oline Jordan Morrill, were sharecroppers, and his father sold bootleg whiskey on the side. Along with his daughter, Cheryl, he is survived by his wife, Gloria Lacey Morrill, and another daughter, Angela Morrill. A son, Todd, died before him. One of eight children, Willie started work at an early age. He later said that once he realized that only the very best students in school had a shot at college, he decided to find another way out of poverty and soon landed on barbering. He started cutting hair when he was 13. He moved to San Diego in 1959, part of a wave of black Southerners drawn to Southern California's warm climate and promise of plentiful jobs. He attended barber school, joined a salon, and when its owner decided to retire, bought him out for $5,000. Soon it was a cornerstone of black life in San Diego, and Mr. Morrow was the barber of choice for pro athletes, California politicians, musicians, and movie stars. The first time I cut my hair, I went to that barber shop and discovered that it was a whole culture where people would laugh, talk, talk about politics, talk about social issues, talk about life, Starla Lewis, a professor emerita of black studies at San Diego Mesa College, said in a phone interview. It was a community for many, many decades. Mr. Morrill wrote more than a dozen books, most of them manuals like The Principles of Cutting and Styling Negro Hair, 1966, as well as a history, 400 Years Without a Comb, 1973, which traced the story of black hair care from Africa through slavery to the present. Mr. Morrill later branched out into media. He started San Diego's first black-centered radio station in 1979 and a newspaper, the San Diego Monitor, in 1986. He made most of his products next door to his salon, having expanded to take over almost the entire block, and he employed some 200 people. A 10-foot Afro pick stood out front. He eventually handed over most of his business to his daughter, Cheryl, though he continued to come to work almost every day if not to cut hair, then to putter in his laboratory, always looking for another new idea. There are several photographs that go along with this story. The first shows Mr. Morrill standing outside of his business. The sign behind him says, Morrill Publications. The subtitle reads, Willie Lee Morrill in an undated photo. He capitalized on the explosive interest in the Afro haircut in the 1960s to become a hair care pioneer. The next photograph, shows Mr. Morrill wearing a shirt and tie and with an Afro pick in his hand, combing a man's hair who's sitting in a barber's chair. Behind him are men in suits. The subtitle to this photograph reads, Mr. Morrill putting the finishing touches on an Afro in Frankfurt, Germany in 1970. The Department of Defense contracted with him to train its barbers and beauticians to work on black hair. The next image is a photograph from a display in a store. It shows a variety of Afro picks and Afro combs. The caption reads, 
Mr. Moreau developed multiple models of his original Afro pick and sold thousands of them in a week. Finally, you see a picture of an older Mr. Morrill standing in his barber's coat next to a red barber's chair inside his shop. The caption reads, Mr. Morrill wrote more than a dozen books, including a history of black hair care from Africa through slavery to the present. That was a reading of the obituary. Willie Lee Morrill, barber who popularized the Afro pick, dies at 82. It appeared at the New York Times, nytimes.com website and was written by Clay Risen and was originally published July 6th, 2022. Up next is a reading about history from the website dailycost.com. That's D-A-L-Y-K-O-S dot C-O-M. The title is Black Scientists, Explorers, and Inventors. It was published July 8th, 2022 and was written by the Daily Cost staff. Paul Cuffey, capital C-U-F-F-E-E, January 17, 1759 to September 7, 1817, was a successful 18th century sea captain and businessman. He had an all-African-American crew that served the Atlantic coast and sailed to Europe and Africa. Paul Cuffey is best known for his work in assisting free blacks who wanted to immigrate to Sierra Leone. He helped the British effort to resettle freed African-American slaves after the American Revolution. He wrote the memoir of Captain Paul Cuffey, which was published in 1811. Cuffey was born free on Cuttyhunk Island, Massachusetts, near New Bedford, sometime around 1759. The exact date of his birth is unknown. He was the youngest of 10 children. His father, Kofi, capital K-O-F-I, also known as Kofi Slocum, was from the Ashanti Empire in West Africa. Kofi was captured, enslaved, and brought to New England at the age of 10. Paul's mother, Ruth Moses, was a Native American of the Wampanoag people of New England. Kofi, a skilled tradesman who was able to earn his freedom, but died when Paul Kofi was a teenager. The younger Cuffey refused to use the name Slocum, which his father had been given by his owner, and instead took his father's first name. In 1773, the year after his father's death, and again in 1775, Paul Cuffey sailed on whaling ships, getting a chance to learn navigation. In his journal, he identified as a mariner. In 1776, after the start of the Revolutionary War, he sailed on a whaler, but it was captured by the British. He and the rest of the crew were held as prisoners of war for three months in New York City before being released. Covey returned to his family in what is now Westport, Massachusetts. In 1779, he and his brother, David, borrowed a small sailboat to reach the nearby islands. Although his brother was afraid to sail in dangerous seas, Covey set forth, probably with a friend as his crewmate in 1779, to deliver cargo to Nantucket. He was waylaid by pirates on this and several subsequent voyages. Finally, he made a trip to Nantucket that turned a profit, and he reportedly continued to make these trips to Nantucket throughout the war. Cuffey was keenly aware of the inequities and difficulties faced by blacks in the United States. Cuffey became politically active in his early 20s. In 1780, against the backdrop of the American Revolution, Paul and his brother John Cuffey refused to pay taxes, arguing that despite being free blacks, 
they were denied the right to vote. The two were briefly jailed, and in 1780, Cuffey and several other free blacks petitioned the Massachusetts General Court, requesting that they be exempted from taxation because they were denied the benefits of citizenship. Although the petition failed to sway the Massachusetts General Court, the campaign helped to pave the way for creation of a new constitution in 1783, which granted equality to all Massachusetts citizens. The result was that Massachusetts made all free persons of color liable to taxation according to the ratio established for white men and granting them the privileges belonging to the other citizens. After the war's end, Cuffey and his brother-in-law, Michael Wainer, opened a shipyard and they soon had three small ships. Cuffey would later build a number of larger vessels, including the Hero and the Alpha, he and various relatives manned the ships and went on long whaling expeditions and trading voyages to Europe and other parts of the Americas. In addition to his maritime ventures, Cuffey was a prosperous merchant as well as the owner of a grist mill and a farm. As a result of his labors, Cuffey was perhaps the wealthiest African-American of his time. In 1808, Cuffey became a member of the Society of Friends, or Quakers, and he joined the Friends Meeting in nearby Westport, Massachusetts, where he bought a farm. By 1811, he was reputedly the wealthiest African-American in the United States and the largest employer of free African-Americans. Despite his commercial success, Cuffey became increasingly disillusioned with the racial status of African-Americans and believed the creation of an independent African nation led by returnees from the United States offered the best prospects for free blacks and for African modernization. Asked by the society to assist in the resettlement of free blacks to the British colony of Sierra Leone, Cuffey became interested in the possibility of freed slaves returning to Africa. Inspired by British abolitionists who had established Sierra Leone, Cuffey began to recruit blacks to immigrate to the fledgling colony. On January 2, 1811, he launched his first expedition to Sierra Leone, sailing with an all-African-American crew to Freetown. While there, Cuffey helped to establish the Friendly Society of Sierra Leone, a trading organization run by African-Americans who had returned to West Africa. Cuffey and others hoped the success of this enterprise would generate a mass immigration of free blacks to West Africa who, once there, would evangelize the Africans, establish business enterprises, and work to abolish slavery. Later that year, he journeyed to England, where he met with British abolitionists and sought to support for his resettlement plans. He eventually secured a land grant. In 1812, Cuffey returned to the United States, at which time his cargo was seized on charges that he broke the 1807 Embargo Act, which restricted imports from Great Britain. Cuffey traveled to Washington, D.C., where he met with U.S. President James Madison, who ordered the release of his cargo. Cuffey continued to advocate for his colonization plans, and he initially gained support from a number of African-American leaders. On his last trip in 1815, he transported nine families of free blacks from Massachusetts to Sierra Leone to assist and work with the former slaves and other local residents to develop their economy. Some historians relay Cuffey's work to the Back to Africa movement being promoted by the newly organized American Colonization Society, or ACS. A group made up of both Northerners and Southerners, it was focused on resettling free blacks from the United States to Africa, eventually resulting in development of Liberia. 
The leaders of the ACS had sought Paul Cuffey's advice and support for their effort. After some hesitation, and given the strong objections by free blacks in Philadelphia and New York City to the ACS proposal, Cuffey chose not to support the ACS. He believed his efforts in providing training, machinery, and ships to the people of Africa would enable them to improve their lives and rise in the world. Cuffey returned to the United States in late 1816 and sought backing for another voyage. However, his health soon began to decline and he died the following year. That was a reading of Black Scientists, Explorers, and Inventors. It's from the website dailycost.com. It was published July 8, 2022 at the website dailycost.com. That's all for this week's African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to more programming coming up on the Audio Reader Network.